also, I remember in that scene where there's the, the young kid with the broken leg, Leo or Frank Jr., he comes into the room, right? He's like in his white coat pretending to be a doctor and someone hands him um, like some gauze, like some gauze to, you know, help treat this wound. And he like puts it up against his nose, like he's sort of thinking, you know, kind of like tapping his nose, but he does it with the gauze, which I think then ends up on the kid's leg. Like what a horrible germy thing to do before you treat a wound. I would be so awful if you went to get something treated and the doctor like wiped his nose with the gauze. <laughs> Let me blow my nose on this first. Yeah, and then I'll stick it in your gaping open wound. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Steven Spielberg's hit film, Catch Me If You Can, starring Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Christopher Walken. And Amy Adams. This was like her breakout role. Can you believe that movie came out 20 years ago? Yeah, it does not feel that long ago to me. Um, but I do, I feel like it's held up pretty well to my memory. I hadn't seen it in a long time. I remember really enjoying it. Steven Spielberg very rarely lets you down. He did a good job. He did do a good job. My favorite part of the movie is that it is filmed in part on some of the airport scenes in the Ontario airport in Southern California. I had the opportunity to explore that airport a little bit more than most people with a project I was doing at work. Right. And I got to go walk in one of their old terminals that they don't use anymore, except that they do use it for filming. <laughs> uh, That's very exciting stuff, Robert. I mean, I'm just on the edge of my seat to hear more about this. It was so cool, right? <laughs> you, you see the scene where they're walking through and they have all those signs for the different airlines, like where people might check in or something like that, where they're pretending to be Miami International Airport. It's really in the broader Los Angeles area. There you go. Yeah, Movie not, magic right not there. Not Ontario, Canada. We should clarify. I feel like when people hear Ontario, they assume you're talking about Canada. I said Southern California. Yeah. Yeah. Just pointing it out. Um, okay. So before we dig into this movie, there is an elephant in the room, and I feel like we need to acknowledge it. Do you, do you see the elephant? I feel like I see an elephant. Mm, I don't. I have you no do. idea what you're talking about. Whew, I need to see a shrink. Okay. Um, this movie is based on a true story, right? Like in the opening yeah, Inspired credits. by a true story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I, it says. I got the sense that there was plenty of embellishment there. So according to Frank Abagnale... Abagnale? Not Abagnale, not Abagnale, Abagnale, Robert. Got it. According to the real life Frank Abagnale Jr., who is a real human being, who is, I think, still alive today, um, most of what you see in the movie is accurate. In fact, almost everything that you see was like loosely inspired by something that he went through or some person that he knew in real life. However... When you Google Frank Abagnale, you will be met with basically an onslaught of information about how the real fraud is that nothing in the movie ever happened. <laughs> nothing <laughs> is true. Like all of these frauds that he claims to have perpetrated are themselves frauds. He didn't actually do any of this. His big things. con was pretending to be a con man? Yeah, that's pretty much the case. I mean, surely he was a real con man. 
So let's do a brief refresher for anybody who hasn't seen this movie in a while because it did come out 20 years ago. Um, it's basically the story of this young kid, a teenager. I think he's, it starts out when he's 16 years old um, and how he runs away from home and impersonates an airline pilot and flies thousands of miles for free by pretending to be what's called a deadhead, basically like somebody who, a, a real life pilot who gets to like hop on a plane for free to just head somewhere else that he's eventually going to need to fly from. Um, he then impersonated a lawyer. Uh, a doctor. Yeah, a doctor. And apparently, like the way that he tells the story, he did this for very successfully for a very long time and fooled a lot of people into thinking he was a real lawyer, he was a real doctor, he was a real pilot. And he was doing all this through making fraudulent checks. Is that right? Yeah. So he was funding all of these frauds by forging checks. Um, So he, you know, passes himself off as this incredible con man, this like criminal mastermind who at an extraordinarily young age was able to pull the wool over a lot of big wigs eyes fool a lot of important people. But apparently none of it is true. <laughs> he uh, His story varies a lot from situation to situation. Um, sometimes he tells it differently. And also there have been a lot of journalists who have really dug into the story and tried to verify the claims about you know these incredible cons that he pulled. And there's just no record of any of it. There's no, <laughs> nobody else can confirm. Now, apparently he did pass a lot of fraudulent or forged checks. That part is certainly true. And he did prison time for that. Um, he also did pass himself off as a pilot, although it appears that he was not able to make all these free flights as a, a fake deadhead. Um there's no no evidence to back that up, but he certainly did pass himself off as a pilot, got a hold of a pilot's uniform, which is, you know, not super hard to do, one would think. Um, but other than that, most of the claims that he makes are just bald-faced lies, apparently, including, so the, the big finale of the movie is that he turns his life around and he becomes this guy who works with the FBI and helps to catch criminals, people who are um, trying to do exactly what he did and forge checks. Apparently that never even happened. Like the FBI is looking at this movie and looking at all these claims that this guy is making and going, uh, we don't have any record of this. We don't, we're like, we're not confirming this. We have no, no relationship with this guy whatsoever. Pretty ridiculous. I, that blows me away. I certainly believe that I, I've seen his picture before. I think I've seen like YouTube videos or something of him giving speeches in other places. I totally thought the events in the movie were surely fictionalized, exaggerated, made to be ridiculous, but that he had in fact done most of those things. It's, it blows me away that the general premise is only the part that he was somebody who is cashing fake checks is real. Yeah. Okay. So I have to tell, this is the worst thing that I found about Frank Abagnale, the real person. So there's a scene in the movie where he goes to, I think like a college campus and he recruits young women to be part of this Pan Am stewardess program. That's so he can get away from Tom Hanks, right? Yeah. So in the movie, it's presented as this cutesy little thing where he's trying to recruit a bunch of young, beautiful women to basically be his disguise, right? He walks through the airport with all these women surrounding him 
nobody can take their eyes off of them. And so he's able to get through the airport undetected, even though there were a lot of people there looking for him. In real life, he apparently did actually go to some some sort of organization and recruit a bunch of young women to be part of a Pan Am stewardess program. And at that point, he was trying to pass himself off as a doctor. He wasn't actually working as a doctor. No one hired him. He just tells this place like, hey, I'm a doctor. And he performed medical exams on these young women to determine their fitness to become stewardesses. So like he took their blood pressure and stuff? As we would say now, man, I don't know. I don't know how bad it got. I wasn't able to find any accounts from any of the women um, who this may have happened to. But that is an allegation that has been made on the internet is that he went and like performed fake medical exams to get a chance to be alone and uh, do some pretty despicable things with these young women. So Frank Abagnale, if that is true, good grief, sir. You are a monster. I mean, what a horrible, horrible thing. If that happened in today's world, I'm sure he would just be hung out to dry and prosecuted for it. But uh, yeah, in the 1960s, when this was happening, and if anybody caught on, I don't know if anybody did anything about it. So pretty bad stuff, guys. Sounds like a real con man. Yeah. Yeah. Very despicable con man. That's for sure. So with all of that in mind, I'm still glad that we're doing this episode one so we can call out to other people's attention that like, what a horrible guy this actually was. Um and I wonder if Steven Spielberg had any idea or any of the other people who were part of this project. I'm hoping that that's not the case and everyone was just taken in by this con man and didn't know. But uh, I'm happy we're doing the episode today because there's also a lot of really awesome money stuff in this movie that I'm super excited to to talk about a little bit. Is the primary takeaway going to be how to force checks, <laughs> yes. how to soak your uh, airplane toys in the bathtub, remove the stickers and carefully put them on a bank check? That is exactly what we're going to be advising people to do. All right. Yeah. Everyone get ready to take notes on how to forge checks. Perfect. <laughs> well, with all of this nefarious uh, actual history in mind, let's move into the imaginary universe of the movie and kind of settle this horrible history behind us so we can learn some really good money lessons from these characters. So in this scene, Frank Abagnale's father, Frank Sr., is having a little bit of money trouble and he wants to go to this bank to take out a loan and he enlists his son, played by Leo, the main character, um, to help him sort of put on this charade and make the family seem more well-off than they actually are. So he has... Frank Jr. dress up in a borrowed suit and pretend to be the dad's chauffeur. So they drive up to the bank with Leo pretending to be the chauffeur, and this is the conversation that they have. What's next? Okay, stop grinning. When I get inside, you go back to the front seat and wait. Even if a cop comes and writes you a ticket, you don't move the car. Understood? Dad, what, what's all this for? You know why the Yankees always win, Frank? Because they have Mickey Mantle? No. It's because the other teams can't stop staring at those damn pinstripes. Watch this. The manager of Chase Manhattan Bank is about to open the door for your father. Okay, okay. Look, can we first talk about the Yankees thing? <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. One, 
The Yankees were not the first team to wear pinstripes in Major League Baseball, <laughs> by the way. The Cubs started that. I think it was in like 1907 or so. Do the Cubs always win? That last time I checked. Yeah, that's right. They kind of have a reputation of being the lovable losers. When this movie came out in 2002, I think the last time the Cubs had won a World Series was 1908. Okay? Not exactly beating the world down with their baseball talent because of the pinstripes. Many other teams also wear pinstripes besides the Cubs and the Yankees. You can often see them on Reds uniforms, the Padres. I think the Rockies wear pinstripe pants. Um, There are a whole bunch of other teams that have worn pinstripes off and on over the years that I'm leaving out. Clearly, that's not what's going on. That's not what's leading to the Yankees' success. I will say that people do sort of colloquially refer to wearing the pinstripes as going to play for the Yankees, but let's be real. The Yankees win because they have better players. And do you know why they have better players, Carla? More money. Exactly. (laughs) Currently, the Yankees have the third highest payroll in Major League Baseball, and they pretty much always have an upper-end payroll in baseball. They won in the 60s when this movie was based because they did have Mickey Mantle and they had the best players. They're a prestigious place to play. You know why the Lakers win often in in the NBA? Kobe Bryant. Oh, wait. That's, oh, yeah. Wow. That's sad. Dang, Carla. <laughs> Harsh. It's because they have this storied history. It's a wonderful place. Everybody wants to go play there. Free agents are happy to go sign there. Same thing with the Yankees. They offer the glitz and prestige of being in New York, the world's, the country's biggest media market. Everybody wants to be there, and that's why the Yankees win. Got nothing to do with the laundry, everything to do with the money. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also, sorry, Kobe Bryant, I totally forgot that he had died in that helicopter accident. When was that? Vanessa Bryant, please don't sue us. <laughs> when, when did that happen? I totally forgot about it. I think it was early 2020. It was like the precursor to COVID. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, I'm sure they've had lots. I just don't know anything about sports in general, let alone the Lakers. But uh, yeah, I'm sure they have other lots of awesome players. Yeah, the franchise has had a lot of great players over (laughs) its history, just like the Yankees have. And what do you know that translated to success? So I think what Frank Sr. is talking about here is just a complete and utter misunderstanding of one, baseball, And two, how the banking system works, right? He seems to be so confident that by rolling up to Chase Manhattan Bank in a car that his son is driving, posing as his chauffeur, that that's going to be the thing that seals the deal and gets him a loan. That is just not how loans work. That's not how banks operate. They're not going to take one look at this guy and be like, oh, well-dressed and a young chauffeur, come right in, sir. Let's give you all of the monies. That is not how that goes. So, and we do see that when he gets inside the bank, he kind of gets a little bit more nervous, right? Because they're they're asking him the actual questions that matter to whether a bank is going to make a loan to someone or not, right? They want to know what assets he has. What can he give them as collateral, what kind of income does he have coming in the door? What? What's go- what's going on with the IRS who's coming after you for something? Yeah, exactly. So that is the main financial struggle that he seems to be having throughout this movie. He's got some sort of struggle going on with the IRS. I really wish we had more detail on that. Um, apparently that part is totally fictional, so we can't like dig into the real history and figure it out. Um, also in real life, his dad was not like this kind of con man inspiration for Frank Jr. Apparently when uh, 
his dad found out that he was forging checks initially he was just furious and it was a big bad blow up but um in any event the fictional frank senior here is just doing his son a serious disservice by not giving him any understanding of how the banking world operates or how money works in general right he's just uh teaching him that bravado is everything appearances are everything i think you're right i do want to ask I mean, in today's world, let's say you go to your local bank that you, maybe you do business with today and you want to open up a, a small business loan, something $10,000, $20,000, not, not particularly large. Does the way you present yourself affect whether or not you're going to get that money? I think it probably does. Well, I suppose it could. I, I mean, I don't think you need a limo driver, <laughs> um, but if you come in looking disheveled and like you don't have a clear plan you're definitely going to lose. If you come in looking like you're a professional, you have a way that you're going to use this money that makes it less risky for the bank and you inspire trust and confidence in you, I do think you might be slightly more likely to get the outcome you want. Well, I think it, I mean, for a bank, it's all about the numbers, right? Especially if you're talking about one of these really big banking institutions like Chase or Bank of America. These guys are not they're not authorized by their employer to be making these like willy-nilly, oh, this guy seems trustworthy sort of decisions, right? They have rigid regulations and rules that they are supposed to be following. So it's going to be about the numbers. Now, that being said, I suppose somebody might have the discretion to just say, like, we don't want to do business with you. I mean, if you walk in looking like a heroin addict, right, you've got like sunken eyes and you smell like you haven't showered in four or five days and, you know, you just seem uh, like someone that could not possibly run a successful business, no matter what the numbers are, I suppose they would have the discretion to say, this just doesn't seem like a good call. We don't, we don't trust you. But I mean, especially in, in our region where we live in Colorado, things are much more casual. You can have very successful business owners walking around in jeans and t-shirts, jeans and hoodies, Right, we know several people who fit into that category. Our uh, brother podcast over at Mile High Five. I mean, Carl's a successful local business owner, and he walks around in jeans that have holes and t-shirts all the time. Right? I'm pretty sure a stain is part of his dress code. Like I, he's got to have something with a stain on it. Right? Yeah, I think that it is, and I feel very confident that our good buddy Carl would not have a hard time getting like a business loan if he walked in and had a solid business plan, no matter what he was wearing. So, yeah, I think that stuff matters a lot less today and people are more willing to just not be that worried about what you're wearing. Now, maybe in the 1960s, people cared a little bit more, right? Everyone seemed to be walking around in suits like all the time, which just sounds so uncomfortable. I'm really happy we live in the time we live in. Well, this first clip is not the only time we see Frank Sr. and Frank Jr. talk about money and interact with a bank together. Let's roll our second clip and hear a little more. You want some pancakes? <laughs> For dinner, on my son's 16th birthday, we're not going to eat pancakes. Looking at me like that, you thought I forgot. I don't think you I forgot. opened the checking account in your name. I put $25 in the account so you can buy whatever you want. Don't tell your mother. I won't. Thanks, man. Yep. Didn't the bank turn you down for a loan, though? Yes. They all turn me down. <laughs> then why are you opening a banking account? Well, with them? because one day you'll want something from these people a house, a car. 
they have all the money. There's 50 checks there, Frank. Which means, from this day on, you're in that little club. I'm in that little club. You can hear the music at the background by John Williams, who was nominated for an Oscar in this movie. Uh, very, very well deserved. I just love John Williams with all of my heart. Um, yeah, this movie has a particularly lovely soundtrack. Um, okay, so lots to rip into here with this short little clip. First and foremost, Who I... Who uses checks? Is that what you're going with? No, I was actually going to say that I love <laughs> pancakes and would be thrilled to have like a birthday pancake dinner. Okay. Uh, in any event, yes, checks. First of all, nobody uses them anymore, but it's 1960-ish sometime in there, so we're going to give them a pass. Um, but... Again, a total misunderstanding of the banking system and how it works, right? And again, like teaching his son just the most horrible message here. So he gives him this checkbook and says, as of this moment, you're in their little club. And, you know, Frank Jr., he's 16. He doesn't really know that much. He just swallows that line. He's like, I'm in their little club. How awesome is this? I don't think that's an accurate representation of what it means to open a checking account whatsoever. He seems to be implying that this is now going to give him access to the banks, right? He's like, they have all the money. Someday you're going to want something from them. He seems to be suggesting that just by opening a small checking account with them, now he's like in, now he can get access to a line of credit if he needs or wants one. And that's just not how that works. Did it work that way in the 60s? Certainly not at a bank this size, right? I certainly don't think so. I can't imagine that things have changed that much since before we were born. Um, Yeah, I mean, in today's world, when a bank is making a credit decision about you, they're primarily looking at your credit score, right? So there's the three major credit reporting agencies in the United States. They have strict rules and regulations that they have to follow set by U.S. law. Um, So you've got Experian, Equifax, and uh, TransUnion are the three big ones, which, by the way, if anybody doesn't know, you are entitled to get a free copy of your credit report once a year. If you go to annualcreditreport.com, you can pull a free copy there. It doesn't affect your score at all, and it's a great way to check in and make sure that everything's good with your credit score. There's not some fraudster like Frank Abagnale who's been trying to, you know, weasel their way into your credit. But in any event, a checking account does not alter your credit score at all. So by opening this checking account, he's not like somehow giving him an avenue to gain good credit. Having a checking account balance does not positively influence your credit score. Now, it can negatively affect your credit score if you uh, get into an overdraft position where your, your balance is negative. You've tried to spend more money than you actually had in the account. Most banks are going to have like some sort of overdraft protection where they give you a grace period to get things right and get your bank balance back into a positive spot. Um, so if you do that, it shouldn't negatively affect your score. But if you let it go too long and you, you basically blow that grace period, then you could be looking at a negative hit on your credit score. The only other way that I know of that a checking account can negatively affect your credit score is if you close it when it's in a negative balance and then the bank becomes like a creditor of yours, right? They're coming after you for that money. But other than that, a checking account just shouldn't have 
any effect on your credit. So he's not in their little club. Man, do you think he made like a laminated membership card? Is he going to have to like <laughs> cut that up? I think he probably is. Whatever little membership card he had is uh, it's probably all in his head. Well, he had 50 membership cards, I guess. Yeah, he had all those 50 checks. It's very exciting stuff. So Frank is a 16-year-old kid, and Frank Sr. opens up a checking account for him. What are your thoughts on high school kids having checking accounts? I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. When I was a kid, and I would have been about Frank's age in like the early 2000s, my parents helped me open up a checking account. I'm fairly confident that it is the same checking account I still use to this day. I don't remember ever changing it. You are now a co-member, co-owner on that checking account. Yeah, I remember uh, after we got married, we went to some bank in Oklahoma and... I think we swapped your dad for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So I'm pretty sure that's literally the same checking account that I have had since I was about 16 years old. Um, I mean, we've opened other accounts since then, but that's, you know, a checking account is a checking account. It's a useful thing to have. And uh, we've kept it around for all these years. So yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with it at all. You just have to understand what it is. Make sure the kid understands that these checks they're getting are not like some sort of magical piece of paper that you can use instead of money, um, that it's actually tied back to the bank balance that you have, right? You can't spend more than you actually have in the account. I guess at that time, you probably had to learn how to balance a checkbook thing that seems very outdated today. Um, But yeah, as long as you teach the kid what it means, I think it's a fantastic thing to do. Did you have carbon copies in your checkbook when you were a teen? Oh, man. I'm sure that I did. It it makes it easier to do the checkbook balancing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got all the records there. (laughs) I also had a checkbook when I was a teenager. I had a job when I was a teenager, too. So it it really made sense. But I think it's a useful tool as well. It teaches you a bit about money management. You have access to the opportunity to screw some stuff up. And I think that's a big part of learning some responsibility helping figure things out when the stakes maybe aren't as high as they might be at some point in the future. So I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a great thing his dad has done, but the way he delivered the message about it was like absolute F minus. You did a terrible job. But he's in the club, Carla. (laughs) Yeah. And he doesn't even get like they burn the pancakes or don't even. I'm pretty sure only one of the pancakes in the movie was real. Right, they like flip the one on the left, the one on the right. They just let it sit there, and it should be all burned to hell. That's true. They should have had to run back to the stove in a billowing cloud of smoke. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it would have been a problem. All right. Well, let's move on to our next clip. Um, so this is like the fun part of the movie, right? Whether the real Frank Abagnale did despicable things or any of these things at all, um, the movie is pretty darn fun, and we see this kid pulling off a lot of. Uh, cons. And the first one is by far my favorite. He is um, pulling a little trick on some of his classmates, and this is his parents finding out. Mr. and Mrs. Abagnale, this is not a question of your son's attendance. I regret to inform you that for the past week, Frank has been teaching Mrs. Glass's French class. He what? Your son has been pretending to be a substitute teacher lecturing the students, uh, giving out homework. Uh, Mrs. Glasser has been ill, and there was some confusion with the real sub. 
Your son held a teacher parent conference yesterday and was planning a class field trip to a French bread factory in Trenton. Do you see the problem we have? <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> so he shows up at school. He used to go to a private school, and Frank Sr. ran into some money trouble, had a bunch of problems. They move from their fancy house in the suburbs to some apartment in the city. He leaves his fancy private school to go to uh, a normal public school, but he still wears the uniform of the private school on the first day. And some bully kid shoves him against a locker walking down the hallway as he's trying to find his way to his first class. And then when he gets in the room, that same bully kid happens to be in that room and saying to some other guy, yeah, he kind of looks like a sub. (laughs) And so he just decides to take on that persona in a way that is hilarious. And let's talk about the ethics of this because (laughs) I think it was amazing a, a wonderful way to get back at that jerk bully kid because he asks him to stand up in front of the class. You know, this bully kid can barely read in English, it looks like. Definitely reading in French is not easy for him. Yeah. And he embarrasses the hell out of this kid, asking him to read the next conversation in the, the textbook. It's great. I love it. Good con. Like, seems great to me for the first hour of that first day. Maybe it stretches on a little bit long. Although, yeah. hey, if he's having a parent-teacher conference and putting together a uh, a field trip, well, man, that sounds like a good time. But what do you think about the ethics of this? I mean, I well, okay. So he's reacting to this guy who's being a jerk to him. The ideal thing to do in that situation is to be the bigger person and just not let it get to you, right? But, man, it's so satisfying to see him, you know, stepping up to this kid and be like, watch this. You know, he's just, he is so good. The character is so good at just, you know, flipping a switch and becoming whoever he needs to be in the moment, um, which may or may not be a good or ethical quality to have, but it probably really comes in handy and it makes it fun to watch. So yeah, I think it's pretty fun. I mean, who is he really hurting here, right? He might be hurting himself. He's not actually going to class when he's supposed to be. So that's one thing to consider. Maybe this is why he turned into a con man. (laughs) There was probably a day in history where he would have learned not to do that. Mm, Yeah. Um, He might be giving the kids like a crappy French education for a a couple of weeks, right? We don't know if he speaks French. That's never clear. Is it likely that he's substantially worse than a standard substitute teacher? Yeah. Probably not. That's fair. That's totally fair. Yeah. Um, the only thing I think he's really doing that's bad here is he's cheating the real substitute teacher. <laughs> that poor old lady. Income. Yeah, she shows up. She's ready to go. She's ready to earn a little bit of extra cash for those two weeks. And instead, she uh, just has to go home angry and frustrated and confused. Do you think it's easy for a woman of my age to get over here? How much it costs? And... Yeah, it's a bummer. She's. I feel, I feel sorry for her. Yeah. Um, but he's definitely hurting her. I don't think he's hurting the kids very much. So it's not the worst con. Certainly certainly not the worst con that he pulled in real life. Actually, I don't think this was based in reality at all. They just thought it was fun, which I fully, fully support. Um, yeah, it's definitely not the worst thing he does. What do you think is the worst con that he pulls ethically? Hmm. Well, he did trick a sex worker into giving him $400 instead of him giving her $1,000. That actually apparently is based on an anecdote that he at least claims is true. It's going to be hard to prove that one one way or the other. Uh, no, I don't think that's the worst thing ever. Um, 
probably the worst thing would be pretending to be a doctor. If that actually happened, if he was the shift supervisor in some overnight physician responsibility with a bunch of junior doctors and nurses working underneath him, man, something terrible could have happened. That kid who had the broken leg, he's like, do you concur? Do you concur? Um, the most ridiculous thing ever. He's about to get sick looking at all the blood and bones sticking out of this kid's leg. Yeah. Something tragic really could have happened and been his responsibility. The hospital trusted him based on his impeccable credentials. And if he was unable to perform that role, holy cow, I can't imagine anything worse. Yeah, no, it's by far and away clearly the worst thing we see him do in the movie um, ethically wise, it seems like in real life, he actually may have done worse things than this, but, um, at least this part he did not do in real life. At least that's what it seems like. Um, he made this part up completely, but yeah, if you're posing as a doctor and then like someone comes to you and says, Hey, I'm in a serious like health crisis. I need help right now. Like you have just seriously injured that person, right? You've put them in a terrible place. Also, I remember in that scene, where there's the the young kid with the broken leg, Leo or Frank Jr. He comes into the room, right? He's like in his white coat pretending to be a doctor, and someone hands him um, like some gauze, like some gauze to you know help treat this wound, and he like puts it up against his nose, like he's sort of thinking, you know, kind of like tapping his nose, but he does it with the gauze, which I think then ends up on the kid's leg. Like what a horrible germy thing to do before you treat a wound I would be so awful if you went to get something treated and the doctor like wiped his nose with the gauze <laughs> let me blow he... my nose on this first yeah and then I'll stick it in your gaping open wound um yeah so not a very good thing to do Frank Abagnale has a bunch of different jobs in this or very brief roles that he pretends to be so of course he starts off as a substitute teacher he becomes a pilot um, he's got Tom Hanks chasing after him. I don't think we have any Tom Hanks clips, which is unfortunate because Tom Hanks did a great job in this movie too. He did. Um, when Tom Hanks is chasing after him, he pretends to be a secret service agent that is after the same crooked guy, which was pretty funny. Uh, he becomes a doctor. He becomes a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, he eventually becomes a, an FBI agent, apparently. Well, apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not true. So... He does all of these things based only on fraudulent credentials and confidence, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, how? <laughs> well, it's the Yankee pinstripes, right? Like that's the theme of the movie is you can pull off anything if you have enough bravado, um, which is certainly a horrible message to deliver to the world, right? You need to study hard to become a lawyer. You need to study really hard to become a doctor. These are things that require a lot of training and like supervised apprenticeships, right? So it is uh, awful to think that you can just go out in the world and like do whatever you want as long as you have enough confidence. However, I do think it is a good lesson to learn. Like you can accomplish a lot more if you approach things with more confidence. So the thing this really makes me think of is these studies that we've all seen and heard talked about of uh, men versus women applying for jobs. So the statistic that gets thrown around a lot, which apparently was based on a study done by Hewlett Packard, is that 
men will apply for a job if they think they meet 60% of the qualifications listed, whereas women won't do it unless they meet 100% of the qualifications listed. And men are, you know, getting jobs that they're not 100% qualified for pretty regularly. Anybody who applies for a job without all the qualifications can be a great candidate for that job. Qualifications that are listed are often just a wish list, right? Now, if you're trying to be an ER doctor, you probably should have gone to medical school. But other than that, like, there's some serious wiggle room in a lot of job qualifications that get listed. Um, And I think women especially should be more, more confident and just willing to put themselves out there and not be afraid of the rejection. So the lesson we should take from Frank Abagnale Jr. is that his confidence and and winning personality is enough and that we should probably all be a little bit more confident in ourselves and not, not worry so much. Not to the degree that he was, (laughs) but I think it's in general, it's always good to take inspiration wherever you can find it. Right. Even if it's in the form of a con man who may or may not have been a terrible molester in real life. But, uh, yeah, I do think it's great for women to put themselves out there more and apply for jobs. I think Women are 9% more likely to say that like fear of failure was something that held them back from applying for a particular job. And then this is the statistic that really got me. Apparently women apply for 20% fewer jobs than men do when they're on like a job hunt, um, which I think is a, that's so, a huge So they're disparity. more targeted, more precise? That is one way to look at it, but I think probably at least some of that is attributable to women having more of that fear of failure and feeling like, uh, I'm not like the absolute perfect fit that they have on their wish list here. So why would I bother? Um, when a lot of the men are like, eh, I'll figure it out. And they just throw themselves in. Um, so yeah, I think finding some healthy balance there between like confidence, I can do whatever without any sort of training whatsoever. And then uh, on the other end of the spectrum, like, well, if I'm not to a T exactly what they're looking for, I'm not even going to throw my hat in the ring. So somewhere in there is a happy middle. Well, Frank certainly had plenty of confidence. It worked out for him. He was able to pass his fraudulent checks all around the country and had made plenty of money. He was working as a pilot and he takes his dad out to dinner to tell him about all the great things going on in the world. I guess this was after being a pilot. Now this is he's already moved on to being a doctor, and then now he's just passed the bar exam and is going to become an attorney. Yeah, so let's listen into the conversation between lawyer, that's in ear quotes, uh, Frank Jr. and his dad. I came here to give you this. It's an invitation to an engagement party. Daddy, I'm getting married can you believe that I'm getting married? You don't need to worry about anything now, Dad. Listen, I'm getting a brand new Cadillac. I'm getting a $60,000 house. I'm, I'm getting it all back. All, all, all the jewelry, all the furs, everything, Dad. Everything they took from us, I'm going to get it back. Now, has Mama seen you dress like this? Oh, man. Okay, first of all, he's coming to his dad. His dad knows that he's, what, like 18 at this point? I think he might be 19. Maybe. He's getting up there. I mean, just the fact that he's getting married at that age alone should be enough for like a serious conversation from dad to son. Um, but setting that aside, so I think the real crazy thing about this clip is just that for Frank 
Jr. and apparently Frank Sr. too, everything is just all about appearances, right? He's going to his dad and he's like, look, I'm going to get back all these fancy things that we lost. Everything's going to be okay now. Like that's the only thing that matters in life. Never mind the fact that I'm wanted by the FBI for forging like several million dollars in checks at this point, I think. Um, everything's going to be fine because I'm going to get back the furs and the $60,000 house, which by the way, um, in today's dollars, I think would be about $560,000. So pretty that, nice house. That sounds way low to me, actually. Well, that's what the inflation calculator online said. Well, has property kept up with inflation or exceeded it over the last 50, 60 years? That's a fair question. It feels like over the last two years, it's certainly far <laughs> exceeded it, right? Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's what the inflation calculator told me. Okay. So it was a very nice home. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so he's just all about like the super nice house and the nice clothes, right? That line at the end. He's So Christopher Walken at this point is wearing like some kind of a... And he's wearing a postman's uniform, yeah, right? Yeah. And Leo says to him... Has Ma seen you dressed like this? Like, this is terrible. No woman would ever fall in love with you. I really hate that this movie is just so, like, hammering hard on the stereotype that women are only attracted to men who have this outward, you know, financial success. Is it that women are only attracted to that or just his mom? Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's one of the few women we see in the movie. And she did leave her husband for the head of the local Rotary chapter. She did. She a did. successful businessman. Yep, yep. So Leo, or Frank, whatever his name is, has made a lot of money, right? He's making all these forged checks. He's passing them around. He's figuring out how to get them cashed, get them cashed in a way that can allow him to stay in the same place for a little while and, and really bring in money. According to Tom Hanks, he had taken several million dollars at this point. When is all this money going to be enough? Yeah, it's such a good question. And this is a game he can't win forever. Yeah. So I think if I had been like in a Freaky Friday situation and I had traded bodies with him at this point, I would have done some research, which would have been harder in the 60s. No Google. But uh, I would have figured out which countries would not extradite me to the United States if I uh, moved there and taken my several million dollars, which um, would have been a lot of money in the 1960s and moved there and lived a peaceful life and just put all of that behind me and never committed any other crimes again. So I think his thing with Amy Adams, with Brenda the Lutheran, (laughs) uh, which he pretended to be shamefully, I think he was planning on settling down there, but ultimately that's what he should have been doing for a long time, right? He gets a bunch of money He's been taking on fake identities. He's been able to convince people that he is that person without any supporting documents. Or heck, he's able to forge the necessary documents to make it look like he's that person. Why not do that one more time without bringing in any new income as that person? And then go get some sort of role in society that is acceptable for you and have all of your secret money stashed away and then go use that to have a baller life. Yeah, he certainly could have done that. I will say it would have been really terrifying to always look over your shoulder knowing that you've committed these awful crimes and the FBI is after you, right? You've got law enforcement who's always going to be on the lookout for you. 
Um, but at least by stopping committing crimes, you give them less incentive to come after you. And yeah, at that point, he'd accumulated so much. He certainly could have lived an incredible life. Also, at this point in the film, he is a lawyer. So the way it's presented in the movie is that he forges documents showing that he went to law school and then he takes the Louisiana bar exam and passes it without ever having been to law school. He says he studied for a couple of weeks and he passed it. I think a couple of weeks, is that's pretty unrealistically short, but somebody could definitely pass a bar exam without having gone to law school. In fact, there are four states um, that will allow you to become a lawyer without having gone to law school at all. Washington, um, Vermont, California, and Virginia will all allow you to be a lawyer in that state. Now, there's varying, varying requirements in those four states. There's some that require apprenticeships. So if you want to pursue this, do your own research. But you do not have to go to law school to be a lawyer in all 50 states. So he could have moved to one of those states, right? He could have, like you know, figured it out and tried to build a life for himself. He didn't need to. Martin Sheen told him that he, uh, or he told Martin Sheen he went to Berkeley. So he's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But it is a very valid question that brings up, you know, what is enough in life? I think for a lot of people, it's just the thrill of the chase that never gets old. You know, no matter how much money you have, it never feels like enough because you always want to be having that high of chasing and getting and chasing and getting. So I think that's probably what's going on with the psychology of the, of the character here. Well, it's definitely fascinating, but I, I think what he really needs to do is step back and realize, hey, I've, I've gambled pretty hard here and I've gotten pretty lucky and my lucky streak can't possibly continue, right? Technology was changing. New tools were out there for the FBI to go after him. Obviously, Carl Hanratty, Tom Hanks was on his tail and was close to him many, many times. It just seems crazy not to think pretty carefully about an exit strategy if you're going to go in that deep on something so crazy. Yeah, I agree. And for us mere mortals out here on planet Earth, I think it's a good reminder that, you know, that high of chasing things um, is not as rewarding as other, like, grounded things you can do in life, right? Building something that's important to you, having a great community, having solid relationships, um, challenging yourself in legal ways. All of those are, are good things that can really lead to a, a happy and fulfilled life. And I think in real life, um, the real Frank Abagnale did eventually settle down, got married, had a family, and at least tried to do something with his life. And then he conned us all with his autobiography and convinced Steven Spielberg to make a movie out of it. Yep. 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 Not a great guy either in the end or in the beginning, but, um, you know, at least he eventually learned to stop being thrilled by the chase apparently. And it led to a fun movie. It did lead to a very fun movie, fantastic cast and some good money lessons that we can all learn. But uh, the big takeaway here should be go read about this guy because holy cow, you'll be blown away. Indeed. And have some confidence. Yeah, have some confidence, guys. Look how far I can get you. Except maybe not because in real life he didn't do any of this. But <laughs> in the movie, it all worked out. Indeed. Well, thanks for your time today. We enjoyed having you and hope you enjoyed your time with us. Yeah, we'll catch you next time. Take care.